Welcome to Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? I'm great, David. Thank you very much. So this past Tuesday was a, an election day. It was an off-off-year uh, election day, so there's only a few seats up for, for grabs, but we thought this would be a good opportunity to just to, to do a, a health check on the status of American democracy to see uh, where we are uh, with with. The, the state of American voting and the, the, the electoral process in the United States. Uh, some people say the American democracy is in crisis or in jeopardy, uh, and we want to sort of assess where we are with that. Um, some things that people may be aware of, we have a number of states passing laws to make uh, access to the ballot box more difficult. You have uh, Congress or at least some parts of Congress trying to pass new voting rights legislation. We also have redistricting happening now that we have new census numbers out. So we're going to have new congressional districts uh, and new state legislative districts being drawn up in, at the moment. So it's a really critical moment in some ways, for even if it's an off-off-year election, for thinking about the future of American democracy and how healthy American democracy is right now. Yeah, David, have you you voted in Scotland, right? I have voted in Scotland. Uh, t- tell us how you did that. I I, I voted uh, in the most recent Scottish legislative election for the the, the Scottish Assembly uh, by mail because because the pandemic, and it was relatively straightforward. And how did you register? Is more, more to the point. That's a good question. Yeah. Or how well, did you get on the voting well, the, roll? Because you don't the, register. Yeah, the same well, way. it's interesting because I've lived here for for eight years, and this was the first election I was eligible. They make, they make it very easy to register to vote here. And in fact, if, if you have an address uh, where no one is registered to vote, they send you a letter, and you've probably gotten this letter as well, where they ask... Yes, I'm asking these leading questions. questions. I know, I know the answer. answer. <laughs> um, where, where they ask, is any, uh, we notice that no one is registered to vote in this address. Are, are you eligible to vote? Uh, and please tell us if you're not. And, and But I remember for seven years having to send back saying, no, I'm really not eligible. And they say, are you sure you're not eligible? Because we have all these rules, ways you could be eligible. And they say, no. And finally, since I got citizenship, I, I, I was eligible. And so it was very easy to both register oh, vote oh, and to cast yeah, the vote. Yeah, sorry, I forgot. See, I'm not a citizen, but I was able to vote. Oh, yes, because you at the because uh, uh, this year they, they expanded it for even not permanent uh uh, residents to be able to vote. Who right. I mean, this, this was actually what I was trying to get at. So, 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 you mm. know, I received the same message you oh, did okay. and, and the same, but they ask you, and, and basically, if you're a resident, a permanent or full time resident mm. in Scotland, not necessarily permanent, but a full, if you're, if this is your primary address and you're above the age of 16, you're eligible to vote in Scottish elections, yeah. not, not in UK wide elections. So, so, because I'm not a citizen, I can't vote in UK elections, but, um, I, and I contri- I was struck by that, and the reason for my question mm-hmm. to you, my, my rather ham-fisted leading question, was because in order to vote on Tuesday, I had to chase down the local election officials in Virginia because I... And the only reason I could vote in Virginia is because that was the place I was last resident in the United States when mm. I had a fellowship a couple of years ago at Monticello. Uh, and so, bizarrely, I still vote in Virginia. But it was a bit of a palaver. It was not easy to do. Yeah. Uh, and Virginia, which, of course, was an important... Had an election on Tuesday that was quite... That a lot of commentators think was significant. Um, it was not... It was not straightforward. It was not easy to do, and it required... a fair amount of effort to, 
to do for me to do so. And I was struck by the contrast between the two. And I don't think Virginia is as bad as many other states in the United States. I think the kind of local officials were trying to help me vote. Uh, I'm not sure that's always the case in other jurisdictions. Yeah, well, I think actually the one of the inter- interesting things about Virginia is I think the legislature in Virginia, which is controlled by Democrats at the moment, have actually tried to make it easier to vote in the past um, two or three years, which is contrary to what's going on in many other states where, where state legislatures are, are putting up barriers to voting or making it more challenging to vote. But my point being, even yeah. in a state like that where they have attempted to make it easier, mm, yeah. it was challenging uh, as, mm. in contrast to, to what happens in Scotland. Right. Now, what you don't get in, in, in the UK is the, the equivalent of kind of overseas voting that we that we in the United States enjoy. So, so there is a slightly different uh, way to... Uh, th- there are important kind of uh, differences in context, but, but uh, I was struck by the contrast, let me just put it that way, which I think underscores some of the themes we're going to talk about today. Right. Um, how healthy do you think American democracy is right now, Frank? It's hard to say, David. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think it's very healthy at the moment, but I, I do think occasionally it's helpful to take a step back from the kind of intensity of the, the rhetorical intensity of the particular moment. Mm. Um, and so it might be healthier than we think. Uh, I mean, I can make, we, we've rehearsed the, mm. well, you can, you can rehearse the case against if you want. Uh, you can, uh, I mean, millions of people vote in the United States and, um, voter turnout is pretty good. In fact, it's probably improved in recent elections I, I, in terms of the percentage engagement is quite high. But I think there's a great deal of skepticism about the legitimacy of the system, at least coming from certain mm. quarters of the political spectrum. I think that's worrying because it's undermining uh, faith in the system. We've always, as we're about to rehearse, uh, had difficulty in the United States making sure that everybody who um, is eligible to vote can vote or making sure that everybody indeed is eligible to vote. Mm. <laughs> um, and and so, so I, I think... Uh, I think American democracy is not in a very healthy place right now. I think we sometimes, and I know you don't do this, but there's a tendency sometimes to romanticize the past mm. as that kind of, you know, the, 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 there's the great Norman Rockwell painting from the war, I can't remember which of the four freedoms it is, of the guy standing up at town meeting, and it's a New England town meeting. I used to go to town meeting in my, my hometown. And it, you know, there's that kind of wholesome vision of a kind of democratic past. And I think if... It, it, our discussion today is going to demonstrate that that was uh, um, not uh, often not the case. So uh, you might ask how healthy American democracy has been throughout the history of the republic, indeed. Oh, to be sure. Well, what's well, your assessment, David? Um, what I'm worried about is, is if we're going to say talk use health as a metaphor, that the American democracy might go into a coma, that it may still do things that look like a democracy, it may breathe in and out, you know, you may as well have elections and voting, but that the 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 sh- it's going to be a more of a shell of a democracy than a a a a, a living breathing democracy, in as much as that the voting process is going to reflect the will of the people. I think that the some of the voting restrictions that that have been passed in, in, in especially in the past decade, and I think we're at, we're at a moment in the past which really been since. 2008, and I'm picking that year for, for a reason, that, that things have gone in a very decisive direction in terms of 
of access to the ballot box and in terms of the kinds of gerrymandering that's happening at the congressional level and especially the state legislative level that that makes it kind of a shadow democracy in many ways and in which people may go and vote and may go and vote in high numbers but whose votes may not be consequential and and may not mean that they are are, are that the will of the people is representative represented in the people that hold office uh, which might mean that policies are not made for the majority, but for the minority who elect them. Uh, and that's, I think, deeply problematic if, 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 uh, for, uh, for a democracy. You know, if we go back to, 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 to your man Jefferson, I'm going to, of course, attribute everything Jefferson says to, for, for you to explain. You know, he, I channel him, I'm his immediate. Well, you know, somebody's got to do it. Um, you know, in the Declaration of Independence, he, he says that, that they say, I guess, um, you know, that that consent of the governed is, is fundamental for a legitimate government. And at some point, you know, democracy, when it went, when the, 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 the mechanisms of democracy don't work very well, then you no longer really have the consent of the governed. Um, in a in a meaningful, robust kind of way, um, and obviously, you know, the one could argue we've only really had a consent of the governed uh, in a meaningful way since nineteen sixty five or nineteen sixty six, depending on how you want to think about it. Uh, you know, in the aftermath of of the Voting Rights Act, but also a number of other uh, court decisions and other pieces of legislation that really did allow the majority of people to to vote and have their political will expressed uh, and acted upon by by legislative bodies and by elected officials. Yeah, although I, I would I, I I think you're right about that, but that's a very modern definition of of consent. So if you go back to the 18th century, so so the the political community, of course, was severely circumscribed. Um, you know, George Washington was probably elected with the votes of six percent of the population uh, in in 1789. Um, so that doesn't sound very democratic. However, you have to understand the mechanisms to have mass democracy simply didn't exist in the mm. 18th and early 19th centuries, and there was a different conception of citizenship and giving consent. So. We may not agree with this, and it's certainly not a modern sense, but the, the, the sort of white male head of household mm. who owned property represented his family, and the, fa and the definition of family often included unfree people, not just biological relatives, in the community when he cast a vote. And so, again, we may not agree with that, that kind of conception of, of, of people giving their consent, but, but there was a notion of consent in earlier periods. So, so, so we have to be a little, one of the, one of the challenges we face mm. in historicizing some of these concepts is the words are the same, voting, consent, sure. democracy, etc. but they don't necessarily mean the same things uh, in different periods of time. Having said, you know, I'm not here to defend this and say, hey, the 1790s, that was a great time. Uh, yes. That's not what I'm saying, but I, I, I think. It was for 6% of the population. Yes. Um. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, uh, you know, so we have to be a, a, a little bit, I'd be a little bit careful. Now, I think what we've seen, and I, we need to talk about some of these details now, but I, I think one, one thing we see is 
from the time of the revolution, mm. because consent to the governed is enshrined in the founding creedal document of the United States, uh, what we've seen in fits and starts, and clearly this, there's been, this has been a terrain where there's been a huge amount of uh, fighting and struggles, and often literal fighting, um, is a general broadening of the political community in, over, the sub, over the two centuries or 240 years since the revolution until relatively recently. It's not always an upward trajectory. Mm. It's not, I'm not subscribing to some sort of Whiggish notion, but if, you, if you're looking at it from 30,000 feet, I think that's true. You tend to be more skeptical about these well, statements than I am. And I'm, I'm, it depends I, I, on how good Listeners, you is. can't see his face right now, but he, he, I, I can't tell what he's thinking. So, so David, please, tell, so, so, tell us what you're thinking in response to that. I think the general trend you point out is right. However, I think there's a moment in the late 19th century that is very similar to the moment we're in right now in terms of actually retracting mm. access to, to and, and reshaping how voting works to uh, entrench political power in particular hands and take it away from other people. Um, you know, we think about you know, your story about expansion of, of voting rights. That's that's generally the pattern for the 19th century. And there's there's little bits and exceptions in other places we can think about women. Yeah, we voting. always have to pause because we know the exceptions of <laughs> women voting in New Jersey, African-Americans who, who had property voting in North Carolina, who get the vote taken away from them, various other things uh, in the early 19th century. The general story, though, you, you, you tell is right. The property qualifications go away over the first half of the 19th century for white men. You get African-American men get the right to vote um, with the 15th Amendment. Um, and then obviously in the 20th century, you get, get uh, women gain the right to vote and people up to the age of 18 gain the right to vote and Native Americans getting the right to vote and what have you. Right. Asian-Americans. And to Egypt, exactly. So there's the, the gradual expansion then of, of, of the right to vote. The 1890s, though, is really one of the places in which the right to vote is dramatically shrunk. And uh, sorry, before you go on to that, I think it's worth observing, and I want to throw this out as a possible topic for the future discussion and something for our listeners to consider. The 1890s might be the worst decade in American history. Discuss. Worst decade in American history. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry I interrupted you with that, but uh, anyway, so carry on. There are some good things about the 1890s. World Columbian Exposition is highly recommended. Would have, would have been good fun. Uh, but otherwise, generally, I think there's some lots of pretty awful things. Anyway, right. sorry. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, so that's okay. Tell us that's about okay. voting in the 1890s. Well, so one of the, you know, the things you see happening in the 1890s, and it starts with, with the Mississippi plan in, in 1890 itself, is they are looking for ways to, white Mississippians are looking for ways to restrict black voting and to reclaim political power, the kind of political power they had had in the state before the Civil War. And in the you know, intervening decades, with African-Americans voting, and African-Americans are the majority of people in Mississippi, you know, they had elected black congressmen, um, you know, they had black local elected officials, and what white Mississippians just decide to do through a variety of means, including lots of violence, but also through legal reforms is to take votes away from African-Americans. And they do that, but the, and the, th the thing we have to work around is they have to work around the 15th Amendment that says they can't do it based on race. So they find other ways of doing it. 
and they do things like passing poll taxes. And what strikes me, and, and there's literacy tests and, and all these other kinds of, of, of uh, clauses that the other states adopt, the thing that strikes me that, that seems so very similar between things like the disenfranchisement of the 1890s and what's happening today is they phrase it in terms of what they are doing is they're defending the sanctity of the ballot. They say, look, elections are expensive. We need to have run elections well. In order to run elections well, we need to uh, you know, pay poll workers. We need to do all this kind of stuff. And so we're asking voters to make, pay a poll tax to be able to vote in order to secure the legitimacy of the ballot. They phrase it not in terms of race or in terms of power, but in terms of preventing voter fraud. How do you prevent voter fraud? Well, we have, we've adopted the secret ballot now. We need money to do that. It's expensive poll tax. Uh, and, and so they, they, they phrase the poll tax in a very sort of progressive, neutral way. Well, the poll tax, if you were a black sharecropper in Mississippi, it was 5% of your annual household income, basically amounted to somewhere between 2 and 6%, people have, have estimated for for black families who are impoverished, that that's just not a you know a, a money they can afford to pay, um, and so they find ways to disenfranchise African Americans um, in in massive numbers that, that lasts until the nineteen sixties, you know, and they create things like grandfather clauses that allow poor white Mississippians to continue to vote. Um, well, yeah, David, could, half, half the population. David, could you uh, explain for our listeners how grandfather clauses work for, for two reasons? First of all, they need to know in the context of sure. this discussion, but also it's entered the lexicon because of this. So, so say a word or two well, about so, that. So, so the, the different states do ver different versions of this, but basically they often say that uh, if your grandfather was eligible to vote in 1867, that is to say before the 15th Amendment, then you don't have to pay the poll tax. You are exempted as being a, a family of long-standing in the state of Mississippi or wherever, which meant that white people, at least white people who had a, a legacy in that state, were exempt from the poll tax. And so it's a way of, of both enforcing things like either a poll tax or a literacy test or a comprehension test. They, they would ask voters to you know, hear explain this section of the federal constitution um, to the you know uh, uh, approval of a white um, elections official, you know at the same time that they are underfunding black education and limiting uh, black access to 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 schools, they're upping requirements for for literacy to make uh, them have access to the ballot box. Yeah, in anticipation for this episode, I was looking at some of those tests. Oh, they don't have any immediately at hand, but. I, I struggle to be able to answer the, to even understand the question, question yeah, the way they, they were they, they are designed to make you fail, right? Yeah. And, you know, some of them are, are, they have, you know, 50 questions and you have to answer them in 10 minutes. And if you don't do it in 10 minutes, then you fail, right? And so they're, they're, they are, they're not tests that are designed to test literacy. They're tests designed to disenfranchise. Um, and to go along with this, I mean, I think it's, it's worth mentioning that the one, you know, in the 1890s, there's a whole lot of violence that's going along with it as well, right? But, Black voting in places like Mississippi, you know, for the next 75 years, 
drops to basically nothing, right? Something like before the Voting Rights Act in 1965, 5% of African Americans registered to vote, right? So you have this huge period of time in which uh, through mechanisms that on their surface are designed to be race neutral, they're designed to be, you know, improve the quality of voting. That's the ways in which white Southern Democrats framed it in the 1890s and the decades thereafter. You see, look, we're having the literacy test because we, we think it's important for voters to be educated and to understand what they're voting about. But at the same time, they're applying tests that, that are impossible to pass the, the, the way they're given. Um, and so I think, you know, it's not, you know, you're, you're right, the general trajectory of, of voting rights is, is in the expansion of the, the, the suffrage. But I think we're at, we really have two periods of American history in which that's not the case. And one starts in the 1890s and lasts until the civil rights era, and the other, I'm afraid of, starts now. You know, and you have to ask yourself, was Mississippi a democracy between 1890 and 1965? When the majority of people didn't have the right to vote. And legally should have. And legally so, should so, have. So, so this is, we're not in the 1790s and different conceptions of consent and, and representation and all that. So, yeah. so we set that aside because you're right. According to the 15th Amendment, um, the uh, formerly enslaved people and their, their descendants had the right to vote. But they were, not allowed, they were not able to exercise that right. Exactly. Um, so the answer would have to be no. Right. I think that's, that's the direction I think we're heading, right? You know, so all these new voting laws that are put in place where they say, look, we're, we're doing this just to make sure that the ballot is secure, whether that's, uh, you know, like uh, voter ID laws, where they say, look, this is a neutral law. Everyone should have a voter ID. These aren't neutral laws. They are designed with the intent of disenfranchising certain segments of the population. Um, and, and they are relative things that are relatively new. How old do you think voter ID laws are? Mm, good question. 20 years old. Uh, they are uh, the first state to have a requirement for a state-issued ID. It's 2006. Right, so I wasn't so, that far, far off. off. So, and what so state was it? It was Indiana. Right, interesting. Indiana, which I think at the time had a governor who was later vice president, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there were things that required some kind of ID prior to that. They, they're going back to 1950. Uh, you have places like South Carolina saying you had to prove who you were, but that could be bringing in a family Bible with your name in it. It didn't have to be a picture. It didn't have to be government-issued ID. Um, and this you know, flurry of states that have adopted voter ID laws, and there's been 36 states that have some version of a voter ID laws now in place, almost all of them Republican states. Um, so, David, explain to our listeners, particularly those who aren't familiar with American voting, why are voters, you know, because on their face, mm. the defense of voter ID laws seems perfectly reasonable. Yes. You know, why shouldn't you need an ID to vote? You need an ID to get on an airplane. This is the argument we hear all the time. And you made a categorical statement uh, a minute ago saying voter ID laws are unfair and anti-democratic. And courts 
Many courts have, have backed me up on that. But but what, okay. yeah yeah I'm not okay, so, so here, I'm playing devil's advocate Socratic David I'm not I, I understand <laughs> I, I I get the game Frank I've played it before um, we're almost at two hundred episodes I know how this works uh, do you <laughs> no not really I know how very little works Frank and I, I've given it all away sorry go ahead so I'll give you an example of of Texas which is one of the places that's put in very strict voter ID laws they have said you have to have government issued ID. But they don't recognize all government issue ID. Driver's license works, okay. But at the same time, they've also closed lots of DMVs. So that if you somewhere, depending on where you live in Texas, Department of Motor Vehicles. Department of Motor Vehicles. Thank you, Frank. You may have to go a hundred miles to the nearest Department of Motor Vehicles to get your ID. Which is a day of your life if you have a car. But if you don't have a car, and presumably if you don't have a driver's license, you also may not have a car, um, That's and you don't have good public transportation like you don't in rural Texas, that's a real imposition. They accept in Texas um, gun registration as, as a legitimate government-issued ID, but they do not accept state-issued student IDs as legitimate IDs. So a University of Texas so student, student ID. ID doesn't count. Your concealed carry permit, though, does. And, and, and we know why they're picking those particular sets of IDs and which ones are legitimate and which one's not. And it has not, nothing to do with security of those IDs. It's because they know people who, have, who are registered gun owners and have gun licenses are much more likely to vote Republican than university students. Oh. And even getting a free ID, and Texas doesn't have a free ID as far as I'm aware, but some states have said, well, we'll just give you free IDs. Uh, there was a study done at Harvard a couple years ago where, where they tried to figure out how much does it cost to get a free ID. And they said for most people, getting a free ID costs them between $75 and $175 to get the free ID in terms of the time and labor to get the documents you need to get the free ID. And it's much harder, they said, for some people to get free IDs than others. They pointed out, for instance, if you have a, a Hispanic last name, you have an accent in your name, you may end up with some documents that have an accent in your name and some of them don't because some computer systems don't allow those. If those don't match, you may go to get your free ID and they'll say these documents don't match the name, we can't give you an ID. If you have changed your name because you've gotten married or whatnot, you may have to go and get the records from your birth and your marriage and your divorce and your remarriage in order to get the ID, which costs money to get those documents. So even the free government-issued ID is not ultimately free. You know, those are huge barriers to voting. Okay, but... Uh, again, playing devil's advocate sure. not, not voting right. I am not an advocate of restricting the vote. But what you're describing are either partisan attempts to sh use voter ID laws mm. to gain an advantage mm. or practical challenges. Is there a problem with voter IDs or use, being, requiring identification to vote on its face? You know, so if Texas allowed... All forms of government ID, so University of Texas IDs mm -hmm. as well as gun registration forms. Would that? Why would that be a problem? 
Uh, I think it would be a problem because even then there'd be some people who don't have IDs. And I think there's disproport they know disproportionately that there are some demographic communities that are much more, less likely to have IDs. Um, there are lots of people who are elderly who don't have IDs. There are people who are racial minorities from different segments of the community that don't have IDs. The other problem is that they, I think they're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. There's the claim that there's widespread voter fraud, and there simply isn't the evidence that there is any voter fraud in the United States of any re reasonable amount. Uh, there was a study by a, a law professor that, who, who estimated that between 2000 and 2014, there were one billion votes cast, billion with a B, votes cast in the United States. In that time, there are 31 cases of voter fraud, which is some infinitesimally small percentage of nothing. Um, so we do not have problems with voter fraud. We don't have problems with people voting multiple times. We don't have problems with people claiming they have the right to vote when, when they don't. It's simply not a problem that exists in the United States. It's worth observing that the 2020 election, because of the controversy ginned up in its aftermath by Donald Trump primarily, but also mm -hmm. his supporters, has arguably been the most scrutinized election in modern history in terms of the results. And one of the things that the um, that uh, Mr. Trump and his supporters are find themselves butting their heads up against is the fact that every single... Um, uh, audit of the results has vindicated the results. Exactly. So, so to some extent, in answer to your, your the question you made, a few, you posed a few minutes ago about the health of American democracy, you said actually, near 150 million people voted, or more than 150 million people voted, and the result was quite clear. Okay. Um, so yes, I mean there there is no evidence of voter fraud, but they're trying then to cure a disease right. that doesn't exist. Right. All right. And in this case, the the treatment is is much more toxic potentially than the non-disease. Um, so David, you're really uh, interested in medical analogies this week. Well, so we have some so American democracies in a coma, then it's, it's, it's diseased and, and they... But, they, you know, but thinking about this, 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 this you know, voter ID, I think it's you know, one of many, many barriers that are being created right now to make it more difficult for some people to vote. You know, the, the number of polling places that are being closed across the country is is quite dramatic especially in minority neighborhoods um, and this is only in the past few years Georgia has closed more than 200 polling places in the past few years 75 percent of which were in black and minority neighborhoods you know which leads to voters in those communities having to travel longer distances to be able to vote it means waiting them having to wait for longer periods of time when they get there to vote. There were many accounts in, in the last few Georgia elections of urban voters uh, having to wait five or six hours to vote, whereas people in rural communities waiting for, for five or six minutes to vote. And those are, you know, just, you know, if you add enough of these pieces together, it leads to effective disenfranchisement. What do you say to the argument that is sometimes made um, by commentators and political mm. scientists that actually threatening the right to vote or the exercise of the, of, of the franchise usually backfires because it results in people turning out in 
larger numbers to ensure that they get to vote. And we saw some, some mm. the argument is we saw some evidence of this in 2020, in fact. Um, see, that's what I think is, is, is so devious about the ways in which Republicans, and overwhelmingly Republicans who are doing this, the ways in which they are attacking the right to vote. They're not going and saying, look, we're taking the right to vote away from you. We're defending the ballot from fraud. You know, they're not framing it in a, in, in a, even if the effect is to take away the right to vote, they're not framing it in that context. And so often people don't fully understand or can't, it's not as obvious that that's what's going on. Um, you know, the other thing that's going on right now and has been going on for 10 years, and this is going to be critically important uh, for the election uh, next year and for the election in, in, in uh, two years, or three years, I guess. Uh, and that is just the huge amount of redistricting that's going to be going on right now and has been going on uh, in the past year um, as a consequence after in the aftermath of the census. Yeah, I mean, I saw a, a figure this morning, and I'm I'm going to get the figure wrong, so so don't uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. It was from North Carolina, mm. and it was something like Trump won North Carolina by one or two points. Sure, but and if we take that as a broad measure of Republican support in North Carolina, um, it's probably a reasonable uh, assumption. But the redistricting plan that's going through the legislature gives, and again, I don't have the precise figure in mm. something gives, is creating Republican-leaning districts, 75% Republican-leaning districts, or so, or more, or yeah, something yeah, no, like that. Yeah, that's exactly, I saw the same thing. Yeah, and, we're seeing that trend repeated across the country. And the redistricting problem happens on two levels. It happens on the congressional level. But more insidiously, it happens at the state legislative level. Because they then end up drawing the, in many states, the congressional districts. So you end up with a state like North Carolina, which is should be a purple state. They voted, you know, I think they voted for Obama one election. They didn't vote for Obama the other election. They've got a Democratic governor. Um, they've got a Republican lieutenant governor who's not a great guy for a variety of reasons. But because of the ways in which the Republicans have dominated the state legislature, they've been able to gerrymander the state legislative districts in such a way as to give themselves a supermajority. And then the state legislature redraw or creates, creates the mechanisms the, that are going to draw the congressional districts. And we're finding, and we're finding Republicans really since 2010 make a concerted effort to win state legislatures, redistrict state legislatures, and then use that to control congressional votes. I mean, probably the, the North Carolina is a great example. Wisconsin's another really good example mm -hmm. where this has happened. Um, for their state legislature, Wisconsin, uh, Democrats cast 52% uh, of the vote. So you should think, well, they should get about half the seats, more or less. But they only end up with 38% of the seats. So they are the majority of the voters voted for one party, but the other party has a supermajority in the legislature. And then they end up drawing the districts to keep themselves in power. And the ability of, of legislatures, and legislatures in most states are the ones who draw the district lines, to choose their own voters and to 
effectively disenfranchise many other voters. Um, I think it's a real massive problem. I think we need to watch this very closely about how that effectively makes the election process kind of a fraud. Because, you know, people have estimated, well, what would it take for Democrats in Wisconsin to get a majority, to get 50% of the state legislature? And some political scientists say they need to get 80% of the vote for that to happen. Now, that doesn't, at least to me, sound like very much like a democracy to get, you need to win. But, you know, that sounds like, you know, some, you know, playing a basketball game, the other team starts up 20 points ahead. Um, and, and so, you know, when I say that I'm, I'm really worried about, you know, the process of what the future looks like, how do you fix the process? You know, how do you fix a, a, a democracy when the, the people who are in charge of fixing the democracy are the ones that broke it in the first place? <laughs> I'm not sure I have the answer to that question, but let me put let me let me make an observation mm. in response to that. Um, for most of American history, mm. and a, the the political community was limited and circumscribed in important ways but the majority even hesitate to say this i've got to choose my words carefully there was a white majority in the country at least in terms of those who were recognized as citizens right okay yeah right yeah that is no longer the case or won't be the case in the coming years and decades Right. Mm. So what we're seeing, so, 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 and again, I'm, I understand the limitations on, on both citizenship mm. and the right to vote in the past. I'm not arguing that the past was a great time, but that, but, but what we saw was a bit, basically a white majority throwing its weight around and denying mm. the votes to non-white people historically, but a gradual broadening of the franchise for much of U.S. history, as we, as we talked about, with the exception of the 1890 periods of setback. But, however, in answer to your point, what we're seeing is the tactics of the 1890s, and I think that's a good analogy mm. you're making, but they're being exercised by a population that if it's not yet a minority in the country, it will soon be a minority of the country. And it seems to me, on its face, the very ridiculousness of that will... Uh, so you have faith in demographics to fix things. Not necessarily to fix it, but uh, what, what we'll be looking at, what the United States could be looking at, if, if the trends continue along the lines you've described, hmm. is that you know, electoral politics of the United States will look like apartheid South Africa. And that's unsustainably morally, and it's unsustainably, yeah. you know, the global pressure to change. It's unsustainable. South Africa never presented itself as the world's leading democracy, as the United States likes to see itself and lecture others about elections and democracy. So I, I think the, the, the moral unsustainability mm. of this as a result of demography is a real challenge for those seeking to restrict the vote. Well, here's, so, so, yeah, do you see what I'm here's, saying? Yeah, I think you're right. Now, here's a wrinkle, though. And this is based on, on in response to some, some court challenges to, to, to gerrymandering Republicans have said, look, we are not trying to gerrymander along racial lines. We're gerrymandering along partisan lines. And courts have said, you can gerrymander along partisan lines all you want, as long as it's not explicitly along racial lines. 
No, no, I, I and, understand. And, and so I think, you know, the Republican can claim, they say, well, look, you know, and they say, look, we can get some segment of the, the Hispanic vote. Uh, Republicans have always had, you know, uh, the Cuban population in Florida, for instance, and what have you. Um, but I think that the, the partisan split right now is largely along racial lines, but not exclusively. And I think, you know, the number of... of it's also along rural... Urban rural lines, lines right? So I think there's lots of geography that's involved here. Um, but it's along cultural lines uh, as well. And I think those... those Their ability to, to, to sort people in such a way as to, to make that work for their advantage is, is... makes the whole system seem... fraudulent. Now, I mean, but it's not sustainable in the long run. It's the point I'm making. Well, so I mean, here's here's thinking about you know the the moment from the 1890s. Like the white Southerners were able to maintain that system until 1964, 1965, 1966. Right. So they're able to do that's a 75 years that's three generations yeah. of and the question then and and they were only, that only ended when there was concerted federal effort and, and concerted efforts by by civil rights activists and a lot of bloodshed to end that system and there's a couple of things you know just thinking here about the um What's going on at that moment, right? I mean, in the civil rights movement, that really does change things. I think there, there, people often talk about the Voting Rights Act, and the Voting Rights Act is critically important, and the destruction of the Voting Rights Act recently is critically important. But the other two things that that, that come into place uh, in the '60s that people don't talk as much about um, is the the Twenty Fourth Amendment, which gets rid of the poll tax. And the decision in Baker versus Carr, which requires and sets up the standard of one person, one vote. Yeah, that's when we get the modern notion of consent that was the kind of the premise of your the question we began with. Um, and to understand what happened in Baker versus Carr, which is I think is one of those Supreme Court decisions that doesn't nearly get the the attention that some other ones do. It doesn't get the attention of, you know, Brown versus the Board of Education or, or Miranda or, or Roe or what have you. The, the circumstances of, of Baker versus Carr is that Tennessee had not redistricted since 1901. And this is a case from 1962. So there's 60 years where the state had not redrawn its districts for the state legislature and or for, or for Congress. Such that if you lived in Memphis... Your vote only counted one tenth of what somebody who lived in a rural part of the state counted, which meant that the black majority parts of the state, their votes did not count nearly as much as rural white voters did, uh, and that was intentional on the part of of the Tennessee legislature. They say, "Well, we could redistrict, but it's a lot of work. We're not going to bother." Despite the facts that the demographics of the state were changing, people were moving into cities, especially African Americans. And we're going to just sort of allow for what was effectively a silent gerrymander, a silent system of, of 
creating districts in such a way as to entrench certain kinds of political power. Um, and the Supreme Court in that decision and a couple of subsequent decisions says, no, you can't do that. Uh, why I mention this? Because that's one of the ways in which you have then start to have this sort of fight over redistricting. And this actually came up a lot in the, the last census, because one of the things the Trump administration wanted to do, going all the way back to Baker, Baker versus Carr, is Baker versus Carr, if you read the decision, sometimes it says one, each person should have a vote and all, all districts should have the same number of people. And sometimes it says each district should have the same number of voters. And it sort of uses those sort of interchangeably in the decision. One of the things the Trump administration wanted to do in the last census is they say, actually, what we want to do is eliminate non-voters and non-citizens from the people who get counted. We should only count people who are eligible to vote. And that's why you know there's that citizenship question. One of the reasons why they wanted that is say, look, if we can take away all of that representation uh, from people who are not old enough to vote, from people who are not citizens, uh, people who are not eligible to vote, then we can radically restructure how you know congressional uh, seats are distributed, how local legislatures are distributed to their advantage. Um, yeah, but my point, David, is yes. that these games work but they only work to a point so mm. what we saw in the 1890s and the fact that it lasted for three generations to some extent happened because there was complicity from the rest of the country people weren't necessarily bothered about what was going on in mississippi in the 1890s in in the north and west uh so there was little pressure to do anything about it um Whereas if if the same, I don't think we're looking at three generations of this. Mm. I think what we're looking at is an attempt to restrict the right to vote, mm. to curtail the right to vote, and that's that, that's a crucial element to this mm. too. This is a right that's well enshrined now, and that people have been exercising for a long time. You talked about the two thousand and eight election, mm. for example. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's less. Fr it's more deeply rooted in the broader culture than it was in the 1890s. Civil War was only a generation past yeah. the 1890s. Sorry, let me finish. Yeah. And, and, and I think the demographic, I, I, you know, I'm back to demography area. I think, the, I think that tradition of voting and the attachment people feel to voting today combined with changing demographics makes the absurdity absurdity, excuse mm. me, of trying to deny that. It might work and it'll work locally in certain places and, and it could well tip the balance of elections for in coming years. The absurdity of it and the immorality and illegality of it is unsustainable in the long run. Because what we also saw on Tuesday mm. was New York elected its second black mayor, Boston elected its first uh, woman mayor and first non-white mayor after 199 years of white men being mayor of Boston, most of them Irish or Italian. Um, so, so, mm. yeah, the, the, the electorate in America is growing and changing and more diverse. Cities are incredibly important. Cities are don't have enough power in, in the current political system mm. for the reasons you, you've alluded to, both historical and, and the, the kind of trends that we're seeing at the moment are seeking to undermine the votes of peoples and cities. Yeah. But you can't do that forever. You can't do that forever. 
I wish I, I wish I had the faith in time that you did because I think what we you're going to live longer than me. You're a youngster. You should have faith. That's very kind. <laughs> um, partially true, but also kind. Um, we're going to have a stroke before too long from all the stress from election stuff. Um, I, I mean, I. I think we definitely need new voting rights legislation at the federal level. Yeah, I'm not suggesting being complacent. By the way, don't listen. Don't yes. misunderstand what I'm saying. Because I, I, you know, the, the it, it was only through the concerted efforts of, of a variety of different you know, of activists, at the local and, and national level, in the '60s, that, and in some very positive court decisions in the '60s, that that created a, a framework for 50 years where we did really have consent to govern more or less. Uh, and it came at a huge personal cost to people. I recognize yes. that. I, again, I don't want to downplay the significance of what went before. Um, because I think, you know, left unchecked, this is only going to get progressively worse, at least over the next decade or so. I agree with that. And I don't think you can simply say, and don't misunderstand mm. me, it's all going to be all right because we'll have a non-white majority and it'll fix itself. Uh, I, but but I, think the, the, I think that context is really, really mm. important uh, because it makes... And, and we, you know, we live in an interconnected world and, and we live in a world where... Um, Again, the United States likes to present itself as the world's leading democracy. If you know, that was always a dubious mm. uh, <laughs> assertion, but but it's it, it, what they're trying to do is unsustainable. I think. I think they can succeed yeah. in the short run. I don't believe they will succeed in the long run, and I don't think it will take seventy-five no. years. I, I'm hoping you're right. And I, I now I so much. You know, in the short run, I might would, even believe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but in the short run, these the, these you know. machinations have led to real consequences in terms of policy sure right we think about uh, the i'll just pick the the most offensive case of this you know the the, the texas uh, abortion law which which was recently in front of the supreme court part of the ways in which that a very extreme piece of legislation was able to make its way through the texas legislature was the very extreme kinds of both gerrymandering in the, in the state legislature and disenfranchisement of voters that took place in the previous decade. Had, you know, Texas had a, a more um, reasoned system of electing state legislatures, that law probably wouldn't have gotten passed in that form. Uh, and so these things, you know, it's not just electoral, you know, uh, politics and it's not just sort of the you know, who, which party is in charge? There, there are real meaningful consequences to these things in the short term that have have substantive impact on people's lives. So, um, I'm hoping that 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 I'm, I'm trying very hard to share your optimism that things will get better. But I'm I'm very much worried about the the immediate impact of these things at this moment and what the next election is going to look like and what the election after that's going to look like. Yep. I, I share your concern for the short term. There's no doubt about that. But what's interesting about the Texas abortion law, mm. which we haven't really discussed yet on the podcast, but we should, mm. is even its proponents thought, no, no, this is so crazy. You know, they, they meant it to be in a really extreme statement in part so they, because they hoped that it would generate a legal case. They're like the dog that caught the car. And, and you know, so, so and, and it's testimony to how far right the country has shifted, or at least certain in mm. both certain aspects of, of its politics, but also in certain areas, that what was meant to be a, a deliberately extreme law mm. now seems, at least to some people, to be 
totally okay. Yeah. And, and that's testimony. If one wants to be pessimistic and you're the more pessimistic of the two of us, uh, that would be strong evidence in your favor. Right. All for pessimism, right? Yeah. All for... <laughs> time, time, for, time for last drop, Jake. What kind of optimistic thing can you share with well, us? Well, this isn't terribly optimistic, but there's a season six of Slow Burn is out or has just begun. And Slow Burn is, is the, the uh, very fine documentary series uh, on, on, on Slate uh, a podcast. And, and it's on the Rodney King, um, uh, the beating of Rodney King by the police and the subsequent riots in Los Angeles, which is hard to believe. Well, 1992, it's yeah. 30 years ago. Um, and and it's, you know, it's, it's a very high quality podcast. And the first episode has just dropped and I listened to it the other day and it's very, very good. So I, I listened to it yesterday afternoon. I thought, also thought, I thought yeah. it was great. What have you got, David? Get, uh, come on, give us something, something fun. fun. Okay, okay. Here, so, so every year, uh, Merriam-Webster announces like the new words they've added to the the dictionary, uh, and I always think these are sort of fun ways to sort of see what's you know happening with the culture and, and you know what words they think are going to stick around. So they only add words if they think they're going to be um, uh, you know not just sort of flash in the pans, but things that are actually going to stick. Uh, so they've added four hundred something new words. So what have we got? What's what well, are the choice words? So, I mean, some of them are about usage. Uh, like, for instance, there's a new usage for because, you know, where in, uh, meaning by reason of, um, where you say, well, why is this true? Well, because science. Oh, that wow, usage. Okay, right, okay, right, so that's yeah, a, yeah. That, that's a new... Yeah, that's kind of an internet thing, isn't it? Or, uh, well, most of these are, end up being sort of internet things or internet adjacent, like deplatform. Right. Is, is, is now something there are some uh, acronyms internet uh, acronyms uh, FTW for the win uh, is now part of the the, the uh, dictionary oh, wow. digital I didn't think that I won't tell you what I thought FTW stood for <laughs> this, that's what Merriam Webster says it stands for I don't want to challenge the dictionary uh, digital nomad but there's also a bunch of ones that are COVID related as one would imagine um, super spreader referring to an event it had previously been used to apply to a person but now the idea of super spreader as being an event uh, is now added to the dictionary is COVID it? Uh, that, that wasn't on the list they, they released long COVID is maybe, maybe that was from the year before vaccine passport is a new one um, there's lots of other good sort of tech ones and other things uh, words from politics like AstroTurf, which I didn't think is a new word, but that, that it's new for them. Votorama uh, got added uh, and some words. Surely AstroTurf would have been in as the actual turf. Yes, know, but the usage artistry. to me. No, no, I understand. Yeah. But it's, so they've, they've added a, a definition Usually, of it, yeah. not added the word, because the um, word must have been in the dictionary before that. Oh, to be sure, right. Uh, well, as a you know, capital A, AstroTurf. Uh, fourth trimester is, is a new word or term. Meaning the three months after one gives birth, okay, uh, to to sort of describe that. So there's lots of interesting new words, and I think those are they're fun ways of, of thinking about what the oh uh, here's another one uh, maybe applicable to both of us. The dad bod is now in the dictionary. Speak for yourself. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. So on that note, on that note, cheers, cheers David. <laughs> The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international. 
for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 